You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. I want to go on record by saying that the four or five years, or actually it's been about eight years now, that the Lakers had not brought home a championship to the city of Los Angeles, that um, I was always a Laker fan. Just want to say that, all right? And uh, didn't expect this. Because, uh, you know, I mean, the Lakers, at the same time, the Lakers, it didn't surprise me because the Lakers as an organization have always been all about winning championships from, the, from day one. It didn't surprise me when we got someone like LeBron. Okay, now, I need to just add this. For those of you who don't care about basketball, you're going to care in a minute, all right? <laughs> and those of you who are not Lakers fans, we still love you. And... Jesus will always love you. All right. So I just want to say, okay, I'm connecting it. I just want to say, there was a season of a few years, and even I caught myself losing hope, losing a bit of confidence that the Lakers could really put together a winning season or even just a, win, a winning team. You know, I just wanted them to get to make the playoffs, right? We were like lowering our expectations every year, right, Laker fans? And then this... And it's like, whoa. And then, then the weird thing was, a few weeks ago, I said at the Harbor City campus, I started talking about how, this was during the, the NBA playoffs, how Golden State was going to beat Cleveland, right? And then, and then somebody came up to me after the service and said, Pastor, wh- where's your faith in the Lakers? Like, you didn't even mention about, about the Lakers. What, how come? Like, and then I realized, oh, my goodness, like, I have lost so much confidence in my team that... I didn't even mention them. You know, it's weird. It's weird how you can lose confidence and not even know you've lost confidence. So I want to talk to you this morning about keeping your confidence. Because in Bible times, in the ancient world, there was a letter that was written to the Hebrews in your, what we're calling our New Testament. And at the time of the writing of this particular letter, there was a a leader that was in power named Nero. He was the Roman Empire. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews, or the writer to the Hebrews, we're going to look at what he says in a little bit. He's writing to a group of Christians that know that this man Nero is in power. Now, Nero was not very friendly to Christians. You know, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. It's all over. They're coins. It's all, wherever you see Caesar show up, you needed to pay homage to Caesar as Lord. In fact, if you didn't bow to the emperor, you would suffer the consequences. And Nero had, and all the Roman empires, up till Constantine, of course, uh, emperors, they, they all looked at the Christian sort of faith as this sort of weird, eclectic, kind of cultish group. They were weird because they worshiped this dead guy named Jesus. And they claimed that this dead dude rose again. And what really ticked off the Roman Empire and the Roman emperors was that they would worship this Jesus as Lord. This was their proclamation. And what even puzzled them more was that these same Christians who would worship Jesus as Lord were willing to die for this Jesus they claimed was alive. So Nero was one of those emperors that put this faith to the test. 
he would get round up Christians. They say that he blamed the Christians for the fire that took place and burned down the city of Rome back in 64 AD. And he found that they were easy to blame. So he rounded them up, he set them on fire, lit them as human torches, put them in the arena with the gladiators. You know, you hear about all those stories of Christians in the arena getting killed by lions and animals and gladiators and all that. It's all true. The Christians in the ancient world, especially under Nero's rule, suffered for their faith. Imagine being a Christian in Rome at that time. Imagine being a young Christian, because many scholars think that the, Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews was actually written to new, young Christians. Imagine being a new Christian in Rome at the time. Imagine hearing about all this stuff. Oh, did you hear about what Nero did? To that group, that church group over there, that, to the house church on the other side of the city. Did you hear what he did to them? You see? And it would be very easy to buckle under the pressure of persecution. So the writer of Hebrews, some people think it's Paul. Other people argue it's someone else. But the writer of this letter tries to help the Christian community keep its confidence and faith so they can face the growing crisis that's being created by the Roman Empire. And what he does in this letter is, is genius. He first uses a tool called contrast. He contrasts the work of Christ with the old sacrificial system under Moses, under the law of Moses. Because as many of you know, under the law of Moses, and you know, God started things out to teach his people the price for sin through the sacrificial system. But under that system, right, the only way you could get forgiven and the only way you could get your conscience clear from sin and guilt and shame and all that was through ritual animal sacrifice. That's what the sacrifices in the temple were all about. An animal needed to be sacrificed, blood needed to be shed on, you, on the behalf of the sinner in order for the sinner to be forgiven and restored into right relationship with God. That's how it worked. But the problem with that system, of course, as with any system that gets institutionalized, is that we can get hung up on all the rituals and miss the reality that the ritual was pointing to. And so the writer of the Hebrews reminds these Christians, now that Jesus has died on the cross and risen again, that God has actually now given us something better in Christ than the old sacrificial system. This word better, say better, not bitter. Some of you are all bitter. Christ makes it better, not bitter, okay? There's, he says, Christ makes it better. All over the, the letter in the Hebrews, all over this letter, you see this idea of better. There's better things. There's better promises. There's better covenant. There's a better hope. There's better sacrifices, and it's all connected to the person of Jesus, that he is Supreme and superior to all of this other stuff. He's the ultimate, fully adequate sacrifice, and there's no longer any need for you to participate in the old system of religion. That's what he's saying. Because Christ is better. Say, Christ is better. He's better than the angels. He's better. He's got a better covenant. He's better than anything that you can name, anything that you can inhale, Anything you can drink or smoke or eat, he's better than anything you can post on social media. He's better 
I was going to say it for the young people because my kids play. He's better than Fortnite, and he's better than Pokemon Go, which, by the way, I think is like taking on a resurgence, right? There's something going on with that. He's better than it all. And so the writer of Hebrews tries to get them focused on the better that Christ brings and the better that Christ is. And this is where we start when it comes to confidence. You see, there's that better idea. The ministry Jesus received is far superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator. He's superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. That's what you and I live on today. And so we need to remember that when it comes to keeping our confidence, the real source of our confidence is Christ. It has to come right down to Christ. When you focus on Christ in the midst of whatever crisis might be stealing your confidence, in the midst of whatever situation might be stealing your confidence, when you focus on Christ, he can lift you above the crisis. He can lift you above that situation. So let's listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says and how he goes about trying to help these Christians keep their confidence. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, and a better way, by the way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is who? That is Jesus. He says, don't focus on how well you did or how well you, you know, how successful you were in your past life or how much of a failure you were in your past life before you came to Jesus. Don't focus on all that stuff. Focus on Christ and what he's already done. And sometimes we need to remember that. Don't just focus. I mean, I get it. We mess up. We fail. We're weak. But don't get focused. Don't get absorbed in your failures. Focus on what Christ has done. Eyes off you, eyes on him, because it's this, this Jesus who has called you, not just to forgive you, he's got a purpose for your life. He's got something for you to do for his kingdom. You didn't just come here to get forgiven and then go live however you want to live and then recycle that whole cycle back again and again for the rest of your life. No, no. Jesus called you for a purpose. There's a call on your life. Tell the person next to you, there's a call on you. Tell them like you mean it. There's a call on you. Because listen, listen, the enemy, the devil, cannot steal your calling. And he can't steal the gifts that God will use in your life to live out that calling. He can't steal it. God's gifts and call are without repentance. So you know what he tries to do? Instead of trying to steal your calling because he knows he can't steal it, he'll steal your confidence because without the confidence, you can't fulfill the calling. Think about this in your life. Your calling is something priceless that God is wanting you to become and that God is wanting you to do. It's both ends. It's being and doing. There's something that you need to become. That's why you're going through all the suffering that you're going through right now. That's why life isn't easy for you right now. Because God is shaping your character in the midst of all that suffering. And you've got to learn to persevere, right? But there's also something for you to do. This is why he's gifted some of you. This is why you love underwater basket weaving or whatever it is that you love to do. All right? It, he's given you gifts. And the combination, the integration of being and doing over time 
with God's hand on your life. He's saying, I have a contribution I want you to make before you leave this earth. All you people over 60 in the room. All you elders over 60 in the room. I, I, I tell you this constantly. I remind you of this constantly. There's still something for you to do. Because you know what? Usually people after 55 have started to learn the lesson that life is actually trying to shape them into become a better person. You're being shaped to be somebody. And your greatest contribution is still ahead. Do you believe that? Or has Satan stolen your confidence? This is the question I want to ask you because if you don't believe that, then church just becomes an empty ritual. And church becomes, I'm here because it meets a need. We need to get beyond. We have needs. Let's get the needs met. Hallelujah. God is Jehovah Jireh provider. Hallelujah. But there's more to kingdom life than just getting your needs met. There's something for you to do. And there's something God is, there's somebody God is making you to be and to be like. And it's his son. Amen? All right. Jesus will always love you. All right. Just making sure you keep paying attention. <laughs> so look, look what he says here. He goes, therefore, brothers and sisters, since, since, not if, right? Since you have confidence to enter. In other words, you've already got the confidence. It's in you. It's like, how many of you have a cell phone? Oh, how many of you have a smartphone? Yeah. And how many of you have a bunch of apps on that smartphone? You got a bunch of apps on that smartphone, right? For every little thing in your life. But just because you have the apps, just because you have all that latent power to make your life easier, doesn't mean you're accessing it, right? You all have bank accounts, and you've all got money in the bank account. But how many of you ever received that notice whenever you made a deposit, and the little machine told you that you have this amount in your, in your account, but only a certain amount is accessible? See? So you can have it, and yet not know how to access it. You've got the confidence. It's in you, just like Gatorade, all right? It's in you. How do you access it? Let me show you how to access it. He says, the way you access your confidence in God is first. This is where it comes from. This is how you get a hold of it. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Confidence comes through a clean conscience. You lose confidence every time you violate your conscience. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to understand this. We all have a conscience. We're all made in God's image. And whenever we do something we know is not... Mm, According to God's design, there's something in us that goes, it's like a little umpire that goes, foul, right? Technical, you know, it, it, it alerts us. We go, oh, you know what? I don't think what I did or what I said 
or what I'm thinking is right, right? That's our conscience. Whenever you blow past that voice in your heart, head, wherever it is, that says, uh, you crossed the line. Whenever you blow past that voice, whenever you silence that voice, okay, that voice gets quieter and quieter. That's how it works. So, those of you who remember what life was like when, before Jesus, before you started realizing how much God loved you and how much of a sinner you were, right? I'm sure there's at least a few of you in this room. You live lives that you regret, right? Okay. Do you remember? You didn't even care what was right or wrong. Like, you didn't even know. You were just going with the flow. The voice in your head, your conscience, was very, very low. And then when you came to Christ, what the Holy Spirit did is he awakened your conscience. And all of a sudden, oh, why am I smoking? Why am I saying those four-letter words every single sentence? Right? And we went, yeah, I never used to think about it before, but now, because the Holy Spirit awakened it. Now, you don't need the Holy Spirit to awaken your conscience. Sometimes some of you grew up in homes that taught you really well what was right and wrong, and that's great. But listen, my point here is that when you violate that conscience over and over again, it gets defiled. It silences that conscience. It's like um, playing a basketball game. You know, you're watching the basketball game, and when there's a foul... The ref blows a whistle. Foul! And what happens? Everybody stops. They line up for a free throw. They take the ball out of bounds. But everyone pays attention, and they stop, and they play by the rules. What would happen if the ref blew the whistle, but nobody cared? What would happen if the ref kept blowing the whistle? And then, then the whistle just started to sound like all the noise in the arena. What do you think what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Philippines versus Australia would happen. And some of you saw that clip, right? The big brawl starts to happen. Chaos starts to happen. And so it's important that we listen to the voice of our conscience, awakened by the Holy Spirit. Um, and yet, this is not just when it comes to having a clean conscience, not just related to blatant, um, obvious sins, okay? There, there is a category of decision-making that you, we all have to make at times that doesn't fall into sin. Okay, there's sins that are obvious and sins that are, yeah, that's wrong. But then there's this other category that we would call maybe, the Bible would call it hindrances. Okay, these are like obstacles in the way. They're not necessarily sinful in themselves, but they just are distracting. In Hebrews 12, he talks about this. He talks about throwing off the things that hinder, right, and the sin. He, he, he's separate. He makes those two distinct. Okay, so I know what sin is, but what about the distractions? Because sinful, I should say, sinless hindrances can easily become sinful habits. But they're, sin, they're sinless uh, hindrances at first. So, all right, let me, just, let me just be real, okay, with some of you. Like, 
Watching Netflix is not a sin. But it could easily turn into something that becomes a sinful habit. Does that make sense? What are the categories of things that you would say, this is, this is a hindrance? Using social media in general is not a sin. But how many of you know that there could be a fine line between, okay, this is social media for, I just need to use it, and, all right, I am now engrossed in this world. See? So we got to be careful when the Holy Spirit addresses not just sin in your life, but when he addresses hindrances in your life. Okay? Can you think of any hindrances in your life right now? Don't look at them. Don't look at them right now. <laughs> Can you think of relationships that are, they're not sinful, but they're distracting. I believe when he talks about clean conscience, he's talking about whenever we violate the Holy Spirit's voice telling us, hey, that's a sin, or hey, that's a distraction. And so what we need is a clean conscience because what usually happens, the enemy loves this cycle, by the way, is when we realize that we've defiled our conscience, it usually goes like this. Oh, no, I defiled my conscience. Oh, no, my confidence is now diminished. Oh, well, God doesn't love me anyway. Maybe I'll just stay away from God. Maybe I'll just run from God. And I'll just ditch God for a little while. And you know what, how that translates? It's like... Bad stuff happens, you make bad decisions in your life, and you don't show up for church for two months. <laughs> Listen, I love this verse. He goes, I know you've got a defiled conscience. I know you've got a guilty conscience. Don't stay away from Jesus. Don't stay away from the presence of God. In fact, do the opposite. Draw near to God when your conscience is guilty. Why would you go away from the, the solution to the problem? But yet we do, because we feel ashamed, we feel condemned. So listen, the next time you don't feel like coming to church, ask yourself, ask yourself, what is really eroding my confidence? Have I violated my conscience? And if you have, don't stay away from church, go to the people of God and go into the presence of God. Better yet, you, if you have no way to get to church, right there in your room or wherever you are, you can enter the presence of God and just say, Jesus, cleanse my conscience. But that steals our confidence, does it, when our conscience is not clean? Let me tell you another thing that he says you need to get your confidence back. You need community. He goes on to say in verse 24, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another. Now remember, he's talking to Christians who are living in the, under the shadow of the Roman Empire, and they're probably feeling a little isolated, a little alone, a little rejected, a little stigmatized by Roman society because of Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus. And in, in a society where it's a little risky to meet, as a, to meet like this in the public and to worship Jesus, right, it's risky for them. So the temptation would be, I'm just going to do it on my own. I'm just going to go it alone. But the writer of Hebrews knows 
that if you try to go alone and do the Christian life on your own, you might get discouraged and the pressure might just get a little too much and your faith might buckle. So he encourages them, don't stop. Say, don't stop meeting together. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's risky. I know you sometimes have to use coded language so that the rest of Roman society won't know where you're going. I get it. But don't stop meeting together because you cannot do the Christian life and faith in Jesus on your own. Some of you need to hear this this morning because your general mode when stuff goes wrong in your life and faith is to isolate and to, um, they call it stuff what's really going on on the inside. You need to get plugged in. You need, to, you need to come to church. You need to intentionally seek out godly Christian brothers and sisters that can help encourage you. Come on. I'll clap to that. I'm telling myself that, man. Uh, we were just in a, uh, a small group. Our family actually started a, uh, a life group. And uh, we've been meeting, and we meet with all our kids, it's been a wonderful thing. Every week, and we, we do this thing by Rick Warren that I might actually end up preaching it on in a few months. But I realized the other night as we were sharing in this, in this living room circle with some of our family and we're talking about, you know, we, you know, when you get together with family, you usually don't talk about what's going on in your lives, right? You're, you're just like, oh, yeah, we're family. It's just family, you know. But we got to open up about emotional wounds and how to get emotionally healthy and stuff. And we're just going, man. And... You may not know what's hitting you, but when you leave, you feel enriched. You feel a little more put together. You feel like you're not alone. Folks, we live in a society that has alienated people. Like people, you might be on social media, you might have 5,000 friends on your Facebook, but you feel like you're alone in a crowd. You see, the loneliness of our culture it's a disease, my friends. They, they did studies on this. Um, they're putting them out, all these studies, all the time. About, uh, I remember reading one talking about how the, the number one psychiatric drug um, in America a few years back had shifted from antidepressants to anti-anxiety. It was really crazy, and the shift in that. What, people feel alone, and people are afraid. The Christian community probably felt alone and afraid as well back in Rome. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, don't stop. Keep it going. Even if you don't feel like it, make it a spiritual discipline. Practice this in your life, which leads actually to my next point. Because when you, okay, so before I get to my next point, let me clarify. We need community but not just any community. You need confidence-building community. You need people around you that will help build your confidence because there's two types, right? There's some that will steal your confidence. <laughs> Can you think of people in your life right now that they don't quite build you up, they kind of tear you down, right? Okay, so you need to avoid them. Now, if you possibly can, I get it. I get it. Some of you are thinking about your spouse. But listen, that's a whole nother topic, all right? That's a whole nother topic. 
you need confidence-building people in your life. Uh, the other day, our district supervisor came to visit our church. <laughs> they heard about the, big, the project at Harbor City, and Dennis Easter called me. He's like, Ken, let's get together for lunch. I haven't had lunch with our district supervisor in, like, years. And, of course, Dennis has only been there for how, however many years, even before that. And so he came to church. I toured him around the Harbor City campus, showed him what we were doing. And, um, and I realized he hadn't just come to check up on me. He had not just come to look at the project that we were about to start. He came for me. He came and we sat, we had sat over lunch, we started talking about stuff. He started sharing to me his story about how he had battled cancer, by the way, he's going to share that story at Lovewell, how he fought cancer for five years, and he's like right on the edge of, of winning the battle right now through medical science, through a lot of prayer, through his own personal discipline, and the dark night he went through when he was struggling and fighting cancer and had to lead a whole district, right? So he's telling me about all this, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then I realize I'm sitting there going, this guy is inviting me into Christian community. He's inviting me. And then at the end, he invited me into a coaching relationship, into a mentoring relationship. And guess what I said? No, it's okay. It costs too much, Dennis. No. Are you kidding me? Sign me up right now, brother. I need that kind of community right now. Some of you all need that kind of community right now in your life. You need an older brother or sister in Christ to be in your life. And even, even if you feel like you're inconveniencing them, don't worry about it. Just call them up. Like, am I inconveniencing you? I guarantee you they'll say no. If they're an older, wiser brother and sister in Christ. Talk to me. What have you got? You see, some of, we, some of you need to be that for other people, Right? We need to pass this on to the next generation. How else are they going to learn the deep faith unless you model it for them? Unless they see you living it out. Unless they actually rub up against your life a little bit. All right. I think I'm done with that point. <laughs> Lastly, so confidence comes from a clean conscience. It comes from being plugged in with a confidence-building community. And it comes through, say it with me, consistency. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Yes, yes, yes. Let us not get, um, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another along towards love and good deeds. And he says, as some are in that, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit. So, oh, so this is not just, you know, whenever I feel like it, I get together with the, the, them. Whenever they call me, whenever someone invites me, I'll go. No, this is, I've made it a habit to get together. I have kept a level of consistency when it comes to this lifestyle. If you want to get confidence, you need to get some consistency in your life over the right things. You know, Serena Williams, all my kids, you know this, all my kids play ten tennis. But Serena Williams was interviewed years ago when she won, she broke the record for like winning the most Grand Slam titles in the world of tennis ever, right? Or women's tennis ever. And they interviewed her. They're like, Serena, what is the secret? You know, how, how did you deal with all the, the pressures of the big moments, you know, and, and winning all these Grand Slams? And how did you rise to the occasion? And Serena, you know, like this real timid voice that she has. And you say, well, she, she said these words. She goes, well, I've played a lot of tennis. 
<laughs> and I love that answer. I, I just, I played a lot of tennis. How, how did you, how did you, how did you get to those big moments and, and see it through? How did you secure those wins? How did you, you know, deal with the pressure? How did you rise to that level of greatness? Well, I, I just, I played a lot of tennis. Nothing else is coming to my mind. <laughs> I love it. You know, because you could ask the same question in a different way. Yeah. How, you ever see people that have a whole lot of peace in their life? You ask them, how, how did you get all that peace in your life? How, how did you get just, it seems like nothing rattles you anymore. The world is falling apart, but you just got this serenity, this peace in your life. Like all the relationships are breaking down and this person's criticizing you. Did you see what they wrote on you, wrote about you on Facebook? It's like, how can you have so much peace? Well, I've, I've just forgiven a lot of people. I've just, I've just forgiven over and over and over and over and over again. Seventy times seven. I think that's what Jesus said, right? How, how did you know how to persevere and not lose heart during those difficult seasons? How did you do it? How did you do it? Tell me, this, tell me the secret. Well, I just, I just read a lot of Scripture. In those dark times, even when I didn't feel like it, I opened up the Bible. I claimed a lot of promises of God. You see? Consistency. Showing up. Doing the drill. Playing the matches. Doing the hard work and doing the heart work. When no one is looking over and over and over again. Consistency will help confidence grow. That's true in a lot of different arenas of life, but it's also true in the life of faith. You gotta put your faith to work consistently if it's gonna grow. And that's where I wanna to end today. Philippians 2 says, continue to work out. Say, work out. Work out your salvation. It's not work for your salvation. It's put it into practice. Work it out. You hear the word, you do it. You heard pastor say on Sunday, forgive that person who hurt you, forgive. <laughs> you heard that person say, you heard the, the, the pastor say on Sunday, you know what, you need to initiate reconciliation. Initiate reconciliation. You heard the pastor say, go get your conscience cleaned up. Ask Jesus for forgiveness. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.
Picture, just be careful when you have your stage. Uh, this set will be torn down. 